Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning. Well, having had the pleasure recently of taking my children to a live recording of Britain's Got Talent, that told me something about really good production values. So I'm going to try and emulate the slickness with which Ant and Deck moved through. And of course, there were three judges, but we have three panellists. Welcome to the Editorial Intelligence Breakfast in association with Engine, in whose marvellous home we are. Those of you who come regularly know what this is. This is an occasion to do three things. It is to listen to eclectic, interesting people tell you what's on their mind today, apropos the thought for the day on the Today programme, but it's it's certainly a secular version of it. At least we've not yet had a religious thought for the day, but I don't rule it out. The second thing is to then discuss what those ideas make us feel. And what's always interesting to me is that even when our speakers say completely different things, somehow we reach what the driving instructor might call the biting point, where the accelerator meets the whatever and you the clutch, and everyone does seem, in the end, to always be interested in similar territory. And the third thing is to meet each other and to network. I'm obviously thrilled that networking is now coming into its own and is much less of a sort of almost embarrassment in Britain. It now is being fully and warmly embraced, which is, of course, music to my ears. So the first thing is we're going to hear some wonderful speakers. On my left is Simon Lewis. Simon has had more glamorous, grand jobs in communications than probably anyone else in this country. I won't spare his blushes. Um, He has, you know, represented Her Majesty the Queen. He has worked in the bunker with Gordon Brown as Director of Communications at Downing Street. He is now Strategic Advisor to UK Trade and Investment, the Inward Investment Body. Uh, I think it's fair to say he started the week uh, working with Prince Andrew, the week that Fergie was filmed by the News of the World. So he obviously courts controversy. Jonathan Shallot, who will speak first, is next to Simon. He's the chairman of the Raw Group. He's one of the premier celebrity agents. He is the man that makes the deals. He is going to talk about that world, which, of course, has surprising overlap with politics. And Claire Fox, who I last heard last night talking about psychoanalysis on the moral maze, which she does every week, of course, runs the Institute of Ideas, Uh, which also, I didn't know until I was asked to become a judge, runs um, the first global debating forum for young people, which takes place all over the world. And she's going to say what's on her mind. They're all going to speak for five minutes, and then we're going to have the discussion equivalent of a group hug. So, Jonathan Shallot, hello, and what is on your mind today? Um, Good morning. Can you tell when I'm at four minutes so I know when the five minutes comes to an end? Thank you, Julia. For me, every day seems to be the same thought when I look at the media. And and as Julia rightly said, I work with celebrity, but I work with celebrity in the traditional sense of people with real talent and and people who who make a difference. 
Um, and of course, Julia rightly said, politicians, unfortunately, or many of them have come celebrities, and you have that kind of big divide between politics and celebrity, and then politicians doing big celebrity-type things. And the question often with politicians when they do things is whether they should or shouldn't be doing them. Like, for example, this week when David Cameron went to Whitehaven, was that a genuine, or last week, was that a genuine expression of sympathy from David Cameron, or was it a publicity stunt for himself? Did it help the people of Whitehaven, or did it distract them from their mourning? I'm not making a judgment, but those are the kind of questions one always asks when politicians are seen at uh, difficult moments in the la national life. Um, I see on this note someone's here from the Daily Mail and uh, I saw again this morning another attack on Sir Fred Goodwin about Shred's new palace in the Daily Mail this morning. And the question I asked myself after the Daily Mail have vilified this guy for the last two years, is he really personally responsible for the world banking crisis? Because the way the Daily Mail's continued for the last two years, you would have thought he is. Mike, I've never met the guy so I have no vested interest in saying this. I suspect he's one of many people who are following a system that existed long before he came into action, but he's been an easy target. Um, the big question, and you mentioned the Duchess of York, is, is the power of media getting less powerful? In the past, the media has brought people down heavily, and I'll ask the question now, does media now have the same power? When you look back in recent years or the last 10 years, you can think of examples of you know, David Mellor, 16 years ago, was forced to resign when he had an affair with Lady Cobham. And I think the press focused on the fact that he was in a Chelsea strip when he was making love, and that brought him crashing down. And then when John Leslie was not named, but named in the end by Matthew Wright, he was destroyed by the media representing him as guilty when he was never proven or even, even taken to court as properly guilty because he was found not, I think it, his case was thrown out, but the media destroyed him and it hasn't worked again. Matthew Kelly, one of Britain's most loved television presenters, because he was investigated by the police and the, and, and the press continually suggested he was a paedophile and had various unattractive involvement with children in the Far East, the media took the view he was guilty even though he was never charged. And those are examples of people being destroyed. But then you look in recent weeks of what's happened with the press, with the press's attempts to destroy people, and I'm not sure they've succeeded. In fact, I think there's been some public distaste with the way the press attacks some people. For example, um, David Laws, I think people generally recognise him as being someone who had a big contribution to make to the government and, and, and the betterment of our economy, and yet he was forced to resign because of an accusation that he uh, misled the taxpayer. But I don't think the public actually responded they wanted him out. I think the media said they wanted him out. I didn't feel any drive by the press or the public they wanted him out. With the Duchess of York, even though on the surface it immediately sounded terrible what she did, I think there was a certain amount of distaste the way the news of the world went about their entrapment. The fact of the matter, and forgive me saying this, the Duchess of York is clearly a stupid, naive woman and anyone could trap her doing anything. And I think people look at her and think, it's a bit like catching a fish on a rod. If you put a bait in a river, the, the fish is gonna bite. I don't think there's been massive horror against her from the public. And I think leading commentators like Lorraine Kelly actually praise her in the paper. So I think people look at the press and think that wasn't necessary. I think again, with the 
News of the World attacking Lord Treesman a few weeks ago, which could harm our bid for the World Cup. I think the News of the World and the Sun turned that story down, but the Mail on Sunday bought it. And the public are looking at the Mail on Sunday and thinking, have you damaged Britain's chances of hosting the World Cup? So examples of, of media shifting. And my five minutes nearly up, Julia. And so in conclusion, I think the question now is, is the media leading or is the media following? Is the media reflecting public opinion or leading public opinion? The, a, a big question, did the media win it for David Cameron? Did the media win it for Tony Blair? Or did the media each time realise that the public had changed their viewpoint and followed the bandwagon so they were seen to be right? Someone from the BBC is here today. Is the press destroying the BBC or is the BBC destroying itself? And, and I guess um, the final question is, do media revelations and stings respond to public, public appetite or create a public appetite? Just a little bit there to think about. Thank you very much. Claire, I don't think you're going to talk about that, but as I, I predict, there will be overlap. What are you going to talk about? What's on your mind? Well, I thought with my esteemed panellists that I'd touch on uh, celebrity and politicians and have a go at both. Um, and as it's um, the eve of the World Cup, I'd also talk about football, which I know little about. Um, right, so um, I was interested uh, yesterday in the uh, launch of the Times football coverage, which was led by James Corden, who is Smithy, but in case you don't know who he is, I brought a picture. Uh, um, he, uh, James Corden, is famous um, from Gavin and Stacey, uh, he plays a hard-drinking, junk-food-eating slob in a tracksuit, or kind of archetypal chav. Uh, he's made a lot of money out of that image. I saw that he was presenting the Glamour Awards uh, yesterday and got into a bit of a spat with someone. Uh, read the tabloids if you've missed that story. Um, he is fronting the England World Cup song, Shout for England, based on this image, and now he's uh, got a Times column, so he's not doing too badly out of that image. Um, and he's going to have that Times column throughout the World Cup. So it's really interesting reading his uh, column yesterday uh, because he actually says, poor James, that he's finding it hard to be an England fan, which is a blow uh, because he's meant to represent the kind of archetypal England fan. And the problem he finds is, is that he, James Corden, who's made all this money and fame out of being the archetypal chav slob, finds that the problem is is that most England fans are archetypal uh, chav slobs and he doesn't really like that he finds that if you go and uh, into a into a pub and watch football you've got all these people uh, rather uh, embarrassingly wearing replica shirts as he says uh, standing up with far too loud banter uh, downing pints uh, talking too loud and too blue and that he and his friends are finding it all very difficult because they want to be able to, and I quote, sip vodka cranberry, eat olives, and uh, generally have a civilised view um, of how they uh, watch the World Cup. He, he gives one example, John, uh, that, that, that he was in a pub and all these England fans stood up and said, stand up if you hate the French. And he said, the problem is, is that one of our neighbours is French and they're lovely, and that my parents own a place in Bergerac. Uh, so I didn't want to join in with that. And so consequently, we kind of get this uh, terrible dilemma for James, which is, is that he has utter contempt for the mass of ordinary people who support England. And I thought that was a reasonable thing because I think it's something he shares with the 
uh, cultural elite, the political elite and everybody else, who basically looks out and sees the mass of people in England and sneers. Um, I think it's quite ironic, actually, because you will have noticed over recent years that politicians, and this is not just Eton boys, but all of politicians, feel it necessary to promote their cred by showing how ordinary they are. And one of the ways that they've done that is to embrace football. Everybody has to say that they are a football fan. It's kind of a de rigueur. You couldn't possibly be in public life anymore and say what a stupid game it is. There's a kind of patronising assumption that the more that they're like us, the more we'll like them. Um, but actually, they haven't quite got the stomach for it. Because although they've all become political converts to the beautiful game as a shared national experience, they don't think the fans are beautiful at all. In fact, they rather hate those ugly working-class people who play and watch it. So we've had Wayne Rooney, who uh, that scouse scally, who's now got into trouble for uh, using the F word against uh, a referee. And there's reams of coverage on this, which basically says, you know, he's a kind of symbol of uppity, overpaid scum. You know, what can we do to get the passion out of Rooney? Um, and uh, you can just see that the kind of sense of uh, disdain for uh, the passion of Wayne Rooney uh, expressed uh, uh, all the time. And basically the fans are considered to be vulgar, offensive uh, and drunken. So if not demonising uh, the, the, the white working class, which seems to be a favourite pastime of the elite, uh, we have condescension. Uh, uh, the idea that ordinary people have to be saved from themselves because, you know, sometimes they're quite nice to us. Uh, the hard drinking oiks, uh, all right, you know, don't just set them up. You can actually uh, uh, show a bit of care and concern. So my final, my final example of this, because those of you who thought the nanny state had died uh, with new Labour, think again. The, one of the first things that the new administration did uh, was to introduce new rules on um, uh, drinking, which means that when you go to the doctors or the pharmacists or the, or the hospital, they're going to endlessly harass you and monitor you about how many units you've had uh, during the last week because they're really worried that we're all drinking far too much. Uh, David Lansley, the health secretary, said, we need to understand much better the psychology be behind why different groups of people drink alcohol which is a bit like anthropology, really, kind of looking out at us. Why do you drink? Uh, the idea that some of us drink because we want to get drunk uh, doesn't seem to have dawned on me. Um, anyway, just quick, quickly, uh, how often do you drink a, 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 have a drink containing alcohol, they ask us? Uh, during the past year, have you been unable to remember what happened the night before because you've been drinking? Yes. During the past year, how often have you had the feeling of guilt and remorse after drinking? Presumably the last time you went to the doctor and then went for a drink. Anyway, they're implementing drinking banning orders, dubbed booze asbos. If you get drunk in the street, you can now be fined £2,500. They're rolling out 11,000 of these. They have a toolbox of tactics, a local pub watch scheme, grassroots-style voluntary organisations, a database sharing information of the likely people who will behave badly when they drink. Uh, they, we can be sent on positive behaviour courses uh, to educate individuals on the evils of drink. They have alcohol use disorder identification tests audits to classify the type of drunk you are uh, that includes drunk analysis, uh, role play and drink diaries. But don't worry, it's not going to cost the public sector anything because you have to pay to go on the course even though they force you to go on it. So effectively, if they're not patronising you or demonising you over there, they're patronising you uh, over here. So what I'd say is keep out elite of ordinary people's lives, whether it's on the football pitch or the doctor's surgeries or the pub. Thank you. It's quite a juxtaposition, although there's an overlap. Drink, football. I, I confess I'm a football-free zone, 
I don't mind admitting it, but then I'm not standing for public office. I take your point. Uh, belatedly, this event is podcast. Highlights will be broadcast. It is on the record. When you speak, you will be immortalised. Simon, you're going to be immortalised. What's on your mind? Morning, everyone. Well, one of the golden rules I discovered in life is to follow Julia's instructions, and she said, when you speak, stand up. So that's what I'm doing. Um, I think I'll talk about three things. I will talk about football. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I'm going to talk about the World Cup, but also the World Cup going forward. Uh, I thought I'd talk a bit about legacy, uh, particularly in a week when one of the UK's most successful chief executives has announced he's retiring. And then I thought I would talk briefly about the special relationship, particularly in respect of what's happening vis-a-vis uh, -vis BP. So on the World Cup, I'm just going to start with a prediction. England will go out of the quarter-final stage if they're lucky, is my prediction. So we can uh, debate that. Uh, the semi-serious point is that England is bidding for the 2018 World Cup. We haven't had the World Cup here since 1966. It's etched on my memory as a wide-eyed seven-year-old watching the World Cup final, so it's been a long wait. But actually, the really important thing is that if we don't win it this time, probably everyone in this room will not be alive the next time we have a chance. So it's incredibly important for the country. Uh, the Lord Treesman uh, affair has been a problem, but Jack Warner said this morning that actually he thinks it's still okay for the England bid. One of the more surreal experiences of my time working for Gordon Brown was sitting in a very claustrophobic room in Trinidad uh, during Chogham, talking with Jack Warner, this is the Prime Minister and Jack Warner, about Wraith Rovers. Uh, that was to persuade Jack Warner about uh, how much the Prime Minister, uh, uh, Claire, to your point about politicians of football, knew about football, which he certainly, certainly did. So I think it's really important, uh, not just economically, but culturally and politically for the England bid that we succeed. And the, the, the final bidding is in December. The other candidates are Russia. Uh, there's a joint bid from Spain and Portugal, Australia and New Zealand, but I cannot see any reason why England should not win the bid for 2018. We've got a fantastic Olympic bid under, well not bid, this a fantastic project underway for the Olympics. We can prove that we can do infrastructure, we can prove that we can run uh, big programs. My only real concern, and this is another serious point, is that if English fans misbehave in South Africa, it's a terrible blow. And those of you who remember Shalwa in 2000, that was the, the end of England's 2006 bid. Um, so that's football. Sorry, Claire. Uh, in relation to legacy, obviously Terry Leahy, 14 years running one of Britain's most successful companies. I was talking to some people, Ben Padavan, a former colleague from Vodafone and Chantel beforehand, just saying, you know, what is a legacy? What defines a legacy? You have people like Terry Leahy, who no one in this room could possibly say hadn't done a great job as chief executive. You have the chief executive of the Prudential and the chief executive of BP, who a lot of people are saying there are question marks about whether they will survive, who knows? But who would have thought if you were Tony Hayward three years ago, when it was that he took over from uh, Lord Brown, that he would be in the kind of position he is in now as chief executive in terms of the kind of challenge to him. So it's a very fragile thing, a legacy, and often it's not actually until history is written, and obviously journalism is the first draft of history, that people genuinely can determine what a legacy is. Uh, I worked for Arun Sarin uh, and Anna Cloak, another colleague is here from Vodafone as well, for five years at Vodafone. And they were some pretty tough times for Arun as chief executive. 
He was an outsider, so it made it quite challenging for him coming into Vodafone, and we had some tough, tough issues to deal with. But when he left in 2008, a lot of people would turn around and say, and would still say, he did a very good job and delivered against the strategy that Vodafone set out. So it doesn't matter what walk of life you're in, whether it's politics or business or any walk of life, actually what matters is how you deliver, because how you deliver is actually how you'll be seen in legacy terms. And obviously, as uh, Julia said, having worked for the previous Prime Minister for a year, who knows what his final legacy will be. Certainly, a lot of people would say, irrespective of their political views, here was a Prime Minister who single-handedly, or not certainly single-handedly, but uh, led uh, the efforts to save uh, the UK banking system and indeed support the, 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 the wider global financial system. Now, in 10 years' time, what might people say about that? How will they see it? I mean, it's a very interesting and fast-moving sort of series of judgments people make. Um, thirdly, on the special relationship, and I declare an interest here because I'm chairman of something called the Fulbright Commission, which is a fantastic program that sends young people actually not just across the world, but the bit that I chair is the uh, US-UK Commission. I was lucky enough uh, to go as a Fulbright scholar to Berkeley in California many, many years ago, so I know actually just how transformational it is, and I'm a tremendously strong supporter of uh, relations with the US. It's our biggest export market. We do have incredibly strong links with the US culturally, politically, socially, um, and, uh, but the sort of rhetoric uh, that we're seeing from the US clearly makes all of us, I think, think about what is the nature of this relationship now and how can we uh, best sustain it. One of the other privileges of working for the Prime Minister is having met President Obama. I wouldn't say he'd remember me if he was here now, but I've met him, I've shaken his hand, I've seen him in operation, I've seen him at close hand, and he's a truly and enormously impressive politician. Uh, and I think that's great for uh, the, the global stage, as it were. But you know, the, the relationship between the US and the UK is much more than just the political relationship. And I think whatever happens in the BP, kind of uh, US, uh, how that plays out, will have much wider ramifications, I think, for our relations with the US. So we are in a very sensitive time, I think. And uh, for those of us who believe, uh, like me, in the importance of relations with the US, it's even more important, I think, that we articulate them. Uh, and I'm going, as is Julia, separately, I hasten to add, uh, to New York next week. And one of the things I'm going to do on behalf of UKTI is just to listen to people and find out on the ground what is it that people really think about the nature of the relationship now and are there things that we can do as a country uh, to, to improve things. So I don't know, Julie, whether I've got another 20 seconds or 30 seconds, 20 seconds. So the other thing that's on my mind is why on earth did I agree to go tonight to address the Cambridge Union on a debate and the motion of which is uh, this House believes that spin is essential to healthy democracy. But anyway, that's what I'm going to do tonight. And why on earth I agree to do it, I've got no idea, but there we are. Thank you very much. So that was a good warm-up for you for this evening. Can we just have a little round of applause for our thought for the dayers? Well, there's so many of you, we're going to get stuck in. Simon, you worried me. You're paid money by all of us to represent UK trade and investment. We're looking to you to lead us. And you don't think England will win the World Cup? <laughs> I think, I think England will win the World Cup. I think we'll win 3-0 in the final. And I believe that passionately. And I'm not paid by the taxpayer. I also, I find amazing this whole thing about legacy for the Olympics. 
because the Olympics are about people coming together and having ama an amazing sporting achievements. And we go on about legacy. I don't think you predict legacy. No one predicted Terry Leahy would have legacy now when he became the chairman of Tesco. And I think when it comes to the Olympics, the legacy is not going to be about a great stadium or housing for people. The legacy will be because some amazing sporting achievements will happen. There will be a Dame Kelly Holmes moment. There will be a Mark Spitz moment for those who remember when Mark Spitz won seven gold medals. And I, sus I suspect there will be some amazing people come out of the Olympics who are inspiration to young people in Britain. And that will be the legacy of the Olympics. And no one will know the legacy of the Olympics after the Olympics was finished. But Jonathan, no, I, actually, I want to, sorry, just quick, I want to ask you a question joining up Simon's point about reputation and the speed at which reputation can be tarnished apropos BP and your point about the media. It is the President of America who's basically currently trashing the reputation of British petroleum at the moment. So who's the enemy there? Because the media is just following this like, drama. Uh, They're not leading it, are they? The media, I don't think, quite know where to go on this. I think President Obama is probably aware, like George Bush was aware very quickly, they were criticised for not acting quickly. And for President Obama to criticise the head of BP is an easy attack. I don't think the, the head of BP on a global basis is responsible for the safety of an oil well, albeit the tragedy is horrific. The guy who's not responsible at all is now being blamed. It's like when the Queen Mother died, and I remember the Daily Mail blaming Greg Dyke, for the, who then led the BBC, for the newscast not wearing a black tie. It's always the people not responsible who get blamed. But on the other hand, the people who aren't responsible but, lead the company to okay, get the benefits. So Claire, isn't that the hubris you're talking about? Because actually there's nothing in the, in the current debate about the, 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 the limited blameless blaming that could be apportioned to BP. It's all in America being played out as this company has wrecked the entire coastline of... Well, I, th I mean, I, the first thing to say about um, BP and its reputation is it is, a, it is a, maybe a lesson to everyone that an attempt by BP to say uh, it's beyond petroleum and it's got nothing to do with oil uh, has slightly backfired on them because I think we've now worked out that it has got something to do with oil and they spent a long time kind of almost disavowing what they did to the point where suddenly it kind of blows up in their faces so that's one thing is just learn to be proud of your product um, and so on because one of the reasons I say that is because one of the things that doesn't get mentioned you just think uh, this whole BP thing has become like a metaphor it's like kind of like we, they are getting, you know, nature is getting us back. The environmentalists are having a field day. Everyone's kind of going on. But actually, oil is the basis of energy. Energy is the basis on which the American economy, the British economy and any economy is going to run. And actually what I think on the blame game front that you have to be able to say is, is that people needed to have held their nerve more and not been so defensive. Because I agree with you. Actually, I don't think the um, uh, attempts at blaming Obama or trying to blame the administration, they couldn't do anything about it. And I don't think that they can then just turn everything around and blame somebody else. But there's a more fundamental issue, I think, which is, is that people are not prepared to just be brave in front of public opinion and kind of face people down. Thank you. Now, I'm going to come to various people in the room. Yes, sir, you with your hand up. My, my name's Tony Friend from College Hill. B before expressing a view, I had a question, and, and that was linking some of the, uh, the comments that have been made. And I wondered whether our distinguished panel felt that actually all of these issues around BP and Obama were driven by that giant squid, that, that squid that's come out of the sea, the squid being Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs got off the front page of the papers because of what's been going on with BP and uh, Obama. Do you, do you, what, what does the panel think of that? Well, I, I mean, I, 
I think you're right in that every company organization has its day on the front pages. And um, as Ben and Anna and others know, you know, Vodafone had that moment about three years ago, and it's extremely uncomfortable uh, when you are on the front page of the Financial Times as a major company. And sometimes you just have to, it's one of the things I learned at Buckingham Palace, albeit in a different environment, sometimes you just have to let the squall go around you because there's often there are, sorry, there are occasions when there's very little you can do about it, which sounds strange for a public relations person to say that, but sometimes the storm is so great that weathering it is the, is the uh, easiest thing you can do uh, or, the, or the most sensible thing you can do. Um, and I think that's the thing that I notice most, if I can make a more general point, between politics and business. Business is becoming more like politics in that people who lead companies and work in companies have to be almost as sensitive as politicians to the way the media can operate and gone are the days when companies could if they needed to hide away and decide not to say anything no comment we're not doing that you know in a way a ceo has to have many of the skills of a politician the ability to articulate the company's position and the ability to deal with the crisis in the ability to show the stamina and the drive and the determination to keep communicating the same message so you know, without talking about individual companies, I just think it's a very interesting moment for us. Also, everybody's got to be a spokesman now. I mean, the MPs' expenses showed a parlous inability on behalf of many of the people that were caught under the spotlight to sort of explain, let alone defend themselves adequately. You know, they all displayed what I would call yeah, but, no, but politics. And so, I mean, isn't, yeah. isn't it Jonathan's point about the surround, and Claire's about surround sound media, Nobody in any kind of professional activity is immune from having to be poised to defend themselves as much as to promote what they do. So Simon and then Jonathan. I would, I would say to that, I think... Jonathan the, and then Simon. I'm sorry. It's the inability of people ever to respond in the best possible way. I think no one understands, or, or rephrase it, very, I'm sure people in this room advise their clients to do this, but people caught in the spotlight never seem to understand the value of the word, sorry, I mucked up, I'm going to do my best to sort it. Not one MP apologised, they all had ridiculous excuses. If the President of BP had stood up and said, my company's fucked up, but I'm now going to do my best to sort the situation, they might have got more sympathy. There seems to be a continual denial and arrogance on the person in the spotlight to actually admit they might be at fault. And if they said they're sorry, they might get more sympathy immediately. But, but I, the only thing that I'm concerned about is, um, present company, uh, obviously, uh, bearing that in mind, but, you know, I don't know that I want to live in a PR-savvy world where everything that happens has to be done in public and in the spotlight. And, and, and I don't also know that I entirely just blame the media. I don't, certainly don't want to let them off the hook. But say the Lord Treesman affair, for example, um, uh, just as an aside, that, to me, was just something that was said in private. I actually... I did not think he did anything wrong, right? Apart from being a fool, potentially, and maybe not. Uh, but the point I would say is, is that not every part of your life should be lived in the public sphere. You used the point about Fred the Shred, right? What I think was despicable was that politicians led the assault on the whole of the banking industry, and banker bashing became the order of the day, and the media then reflected that. It's too easy to kind of join a bandwagon or lead a bandwagon and then the solution seems to be that we sanitise everything. And I actually don't want sanitised politicians, sanitised CEOs. I do want braver people who will face things down. So your point about privacy, I mean, you had 
David Treesman, Fergie, arguably you had the Prime Minister with the Mrs. Whatnot comment in the car. All of this arguably did serve your point, Jonathan, that the public don't appear to completely like accidental or unaccidental exposure like that. What does anyone else here think about this? I'm going to ask Geraldine, because you're the head of the Media Society, so you've got to have a view about this. Is there a, is there a sort of division opening up between intrusion and privacy being breached unnecessarily and something else? I basically think that it is a debate that keeps happening over and over again. And um, I think for me personally, I'm tired of the word I'm sorry because everybody thinks that once they say they're sorry, it's over and done. And I want to see them actually do something. Um, so does that kind of answer? I mean, as far as the Media Society, we debate it ad nauseum, I must say. And there is really no firm line on intrusion or not. Journalists are going to be, it's, the journalists need to get these kinds of stories. We need to know. Come to Hardeep now, and then I'm going to move on to people I don't know, so just be warned. Better to have your hand up than to be picked on. Hardeep. Can what I just second that? It's so much better to have your hand up than be picked on. Um, so, many, so many things. I mean, first and foremost, Jonathan, if the England football team was managed by you, I have no doubt they would win 3-0 in the final. Uh, as a proud Scotsman, you're fucking lucky to be there at all. Um, and I think... And I think America will give you a run for your money. Um, some interesting... I was sort of thinking this morning, uh, when Gordon Brown left 10 Downing Street, um, apparently it was one of the few times, or even the first time, uh, him and Sarah and the children had been pictured walking down Downing Street. And somebody said to me, if only he'd let that happen before, maybe people would have seen he was human. Now, I've spent a morning with Gordon Brown, one of the Andrew Marr program, he genuinely loves Wraith Rovers, which perhaps is why he managed to deal with the pain of the credit crunch, because supporting Wraith Rovers is a thankless task. But, but I actually wonder whether we haven't become so engrossed in the idea of rights. I don't, I don't see any newspaper reporting about responsibilities. Everyone seems to bang on about their rights. And when I was at law school, I seem to remember the lectures were on rights and responsibilities, checks and balances. It seems to me there's so little the problem is, if you run the story, the Treesman story, I completely agree with Claire. I mean, Treesman said what everyone thinks about referees. I mean, it was in the public domain. It just wasn't reported. You know, what does that serve? What does the Fred Goodwin story serve? Yet somehow we seem not to want... To, you know, you, you have to use the word curb the rights of the press. I wonder what the press achieves. But also, in a wider point, addressing Jonathan's point, and to, to some extent... We are a country that's celebrating mediocrity. That's what we do with Britain's Got Talent, with Pop Idol. We're not actually interested in politicians like David Laws who bring something different to the wider world of politics. You would never have, a, whether you like or dislike Ken Clark, no one would disagree that he isn't anything other than entertaining. We are now creating a political class that have only ever been politicians and will only ever be politicians. That cannot be good for the country. We're only creating an entertainment industry where people have only ever been discovered on television. Even the ones that aren't successful on television seem to have a better career than most. Although I will just defend Britain's Got Talent 
they were awesomely talented in that semi-final and I had just come from the Hay Festival which was awesomely marvellous but I do think popular culture let's not totally dismiss it yes let's <laughs> Simon first of all Wraith Rovers there is actually a Trinidadian international who played for Wraith Rovers so just uh, we have to get it clear this is a club that has a fantastic international pedigree and Gordon <laughs> Brown and Jack Moore no because the, the second thing is you're completely right about Gordon and Sarah and the children. I mean, they were absolutely certain. They didn't want the boys to have any publicity at all. And I thought it was a very dignified and noble thing to see those boys skipping out of Downing Street. It basically said, we're a family and we're going off to do something. And I thought it was actually quite moving. Uh, and there were certainly times, even the year I was there, where we had to move very quickly to ensure that the boys weren't photographed or didn't appear. There was one slip up on that. But I mean, I just thought it was entirely the right thing. And again, from my time at the palace, I basically take the view that it doesn't matter who you are, the Queen, the Prime Minister, the Pope even, you are entitled to a private life. And I think it's incredibly important. Sometimes it's the, it's the small people, I mean that in a metaphorical sense, who lose out on this. Because when you're in the eye of a storm and you don't have the protection of the PCC and you don't have money to spend on lawyers, it can ruin your life. And I think that's something we should be very, uh, very conscious of. Um, so I think this whole kind of debate between what is a public life and what is privacy is, is actually extremely important. I'm not sure that we've actually got the balance right. You just have to look at other countries that have privacy laws. I'm not suggesting we should have a privacy law, but it's a completely different culture. Uh, uh, when it, and so therefore, in some European countries, the law treason thing would never have happened. It simply wouldn't have happened because it would not have been legal, as it were. So I think that's something that we all need in whatever part of the communications world we're in to think quite carefully about. I, you know, this, I, I don't want to be uh, over-cruel, but you know, the fact that the Browns kept their children out did not mean that they did not play the personality politics thing. I mean, Sarah was wheeled out every opportunity to kind of give Gordon a personality. And there was a kind of sense in which that, you know, it's a controlled allowing you to see the real person, the authentic person and so on. And, you know, it's just irritating because I'm not interested in anything other than their politics. That's what I want to be interested in. But it's also true that the, I mean, I can't say, New Labour effectively destroyed the dis distinction between private and public lives for ordinary people. Pro our private lives are open season. That's why I'm saying you go to the doctors now and they can intrude in every single thing that you do, how much salt you eat, you know, every single thing about your intimate life is now publicly paraded. And I do think that, therefore, to then suddenly say, well, why is it that everyone's interested in people's private lives if you're a politician, when you have effectively said that your private life, whether you make a decision to smoke, drink, live a particular lifestyle, should now be the matter of public policy, to a certain extent, serves them right, right? When they get done on it, hoisted on their own petard. I think you're right about public... There are two aspects that come to mind as you talk. If the people's private lives intrude on us all, in other words, if we're all paying, I'm, I'm overweight, so I'm a, being critical of myself, but why should the taxpayer fund my greed when it comes to going to my doctor? Because my overweightness is self-induced. So if I get judged by my doctor, I think perhaps he's got a point. I shouldn't expect the taxpayer to fund my eating too much. But going on to privacy and, 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 and public life of people in, in the public eye, whether it be politicians or celebrities, I think clearly everyone has a right to privacy. But you don't have a right to privacy if you use your private life to get yourself the power and make money. I think you've got to make a choice. Some people protect their private life and conduct their 
public lives in a private way, and some people conduct their public lives in a public way. And I think you have to make a decision which route you're going to go if you're in the public life. Okay, now we're going to have about three. Oh, great. We're going to have audience participation, and then we're going to have a bit of networking and breakfast. Sir, in the front. Thank you very much. I'm going for the sympathy vote because I'm a politician. Uh, my name is John Shimon. I'm Minister for the Environment on a small place called the Isle of Man in the Irish Sea. Uh, we're a very intimate island, so 80,000 people, so it's very difficult to maintain a private life within such a close proximity. Um, there was a song on I heard a couple of weeks ago which said, uh, politics is celebrity for ugly people. And it brings in the idea of what is it that we're wanting from politicians. And I think the panel, particularly from uh, Jonathan and Claire's point of view, have exposed the difficulty I and others have in politics because Jonathan will say he wants somebody to be honest and apologize. Claire would say that she wants somebody to be strong and stand up for their convictions. And the politicians are constantly trying to play the game of actually representing all of the people. And the majority of the people already have their firmly held views and prejudices. So when you're reaching out to try and talk to the people, this is such an amorphous body that you can't ever actually communicate clearly to one audience without potentially offending the others. I think the main issue, you've got to try and be honest to yourself, and all politicians would try and argue that that's what they try and do. So whether it be Gordon Brown and the family, he's criticised for keeping them private, he's criticised for trying to actually expose them and use a, a means by which they can be wheeled out at suitable times. Does a politician go to Cumbria or does they not? do they not? The media will expose whichever story they do in a way which actually creates some listener audience that will actually try and criticise that. So I think the intention is to try and always be honest to yourself, but every politician would say that, wouldn't we? Thank you, so. thank you. Now onwards, onwards. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about the privacy issue because it's not just about politicians. I think Claire's absolutely right in the way in which whichever sphere you talk about, whether it's at work or whether it's at home uh, or whether you're a parent, I think it is quite clear that you, do, you are told how to behave, what to do. And if you look at even football, for instance, which has been discussed today, um, I like football. I am not interested in uh, Ashley Cole's private life. And yet, if you think about it, um, I read an article where Wayne Rooney is, um, 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 uh, everyone is very proud of him, but not proud of Ashley Cole. And the sole reason is they're not proud of him because of his private life. And everyone watches Ashley Cole play because of his football talents. And I think we have got a real blurring of the private and the public, uh, and a real denial, if you like, that the things that we love about people are about what they do, whether it's sports or whether it's politics, policies, whatever. I would, yes, you're also from the Institute of Ideas, aren't you? It's a very purist line coming out of the Institute of Ideas that pers I, I kind of do want to know a bit well, about Ashley, Co <laughs> Ashley Cole's private life a little bit. I think it's a bit difficult, isn't it, to overcome this inseparability. Who else, who else, who else? A couple more. Tony Almos, City of London Corporation. I will say your, who you are for you. Uh, three quick things, picking up what was said. Firstly, on, on, on senior people, chief executives and the like, who in, in the spotlight, yes, Red, um, Fred Goodwin, for example, it's all gone too far, but don't forget the starting point. He managed to do a, a deal too far 
he destroyed his bank, and we, all of us, the taxpayer, now have to own it and pay for it and run it. So that is the core. We can't forget that. He didn't just sort of get picked on by at random. People at the top have to take responsibility. BP, uh, it's no good saying that either the American administration or BP are not responsible for what happened. They are both responsible. The regulatory regime is a mess, as all the press coverage has said. So you can argue which administration in Washington, but the Washington generally is very heavily responsible for the, for the mess. And the company is responsible, the way BP structured, the way John Brown changed, the way it did business. There's a great debate going on about how you run, run deep oil wells and all the rest of it. So they're both responsible. It's not a natural act of God. So there's some real heavy responsibility there which needs to be inquired into and will be on Capitol Hill, I do not doubt. Um, special relationship, yes, I love America too, like Simon, and that there's definitely a special relationship, but I really do think the time has come to stop talking about the special relationship. It, 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 America has relationships with lots of people. We shouldn't sing, single ourselves out and think we're the only ones that should have it. There are lots of issues that have always been roused. Uh, um, BP, for goodness sake, what was BP originally? The Anglo-Persian Oil Company. Uh, and that means Iran today, and that means all sorts of issues, and, and so it goes on. The... Um, uh, the um, special relationship, so-called, is a term used in, in Britain and only used in America when presidents are at podiums at press conferences with British prime ministers. We should ban the term. Thank you. Final point over here, and then we'll ask our speakers to round up and have uh, some breakfast. Sorry, I was, I was slightly late, so apologies if this point has been made, but I think what's, what I find interesting is that uh, Brendan Craigie from Hotwire. Um, what I find interesting is just the massive contradiction between this whole discussion around privacy and protecting people's private lives. Then on the other side, we obviously have this huge explosion in, in social media where people seem um, more and more prepared to share the most intimate aspects of their lives um, without any sense of um, feeling uncomfortable about that. And I think you can't really have it both ways. You, you know, if you want to be that public and that open with people, then on the other hand, you can't sort of make claims about protecting your privacy. Thank you. Well, I thought we would coalesce around a certain subject, and we sort of have. Claire, wrap up very quickly what you've taken from this morning, then Jonathan, then Simon. Um, uh, popular culture, I'm a great fan of Britain's Got Talent and the usual, uh, all of those uh, programmes, um, but I do recognise that they are trash. Uh, my concern is uh, that people actually imagine that the public uh, can be kept at that level. I live in Wood Green, where every morning, well, permanently on a loop, they play classical music, Shostakovich, Wagner, Beethoven, uh, Mozart, blares out very loudly. In case anybody thought this was a policy decision to encourage ordinary people to uh, like classical music, no, it was a policy rolled out by the last administration that if you played it loud enough, the yokes wouldn't stay around and that young people would be driven away and that you would have less drinking and drugs in the tube station. So such is their disdain, they imagine that we won't possibly cope with classical music, uh, give us uh, Britain's Got Talents instead. Um, uh, and then the, to the politician, uh, uh, worrying about how you can represent us all and, and keep us all happy, uh, that's not your job. Your job is to have some principles and then to try and convince me of them. And if you can't, then I won't vote for you or I won't take any notice of you. The idea that you've got to chase after me to keep me happy is patronising and the death of politics. And that's what's happened. Everybody's trying to get in with the people. Whereas what you need to do is to convince them of something. And if you don't know what to convince them of, you'll be in politics. My vision of politics is that you have some vision of the future, some principle, some belief... You then tell us what it is, and you argue with me. 
You don't try and tell me I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong, right? And you show me respect by imagining that I can cope with hearing an argument that I disagree with. And if you did that, I wouldn't care less what football team you supported, how authentic you were or what you did in your private life. I'd respect you as a politician. The problem is, is that we now have celebrity, what is it, celebrity for ugly people. Then you look at the Labour Party election and you think there isn't even celebrity. Personality politics is dying with that very election. I mean, I wish they had some personality. They certainly haven't got any politics. Jonathan, your, your celebs are constantly wooing people with their marvellousness. I think that the, the challenges that we all face and all the problems we talk about, the fame of Wayne Rooney, the Goldman Sachs, the BP, the politicians who get outed, the one constant theme of all the problems that seem to happen in the world is about greed, it's about motivation for money. BP and not, not enough safety because money was saved by having shortcuts. Expenses, politicians, because of circumstances sometimes, trying to get more money for themselves. Every problem in public life that happens, I think, goes back to money. That's not to say individuals go back to money, because individuals hopefully lead the lives that they can be proud of and honest to themselves. But the culture where we all work now, we're driven to make as much money as possible. And when you're driven to make as much money as possible, things happen inevitably that lead to problems because in saving money, you create problems which sometimes create terrible tragedies. Thank you. Well, like, like Simon, I do love America and I love their phraseology. So in an American accent, I will say, what is your takeaway from this morning, Simon? Well, <laughs> So first of all, clarification, I fear that England will lose Sweden in the quarterfinal. I really, really, Jonathan, want England to win. I want to put that on the record. I think football deserves an English triumph in South Africa. Although having just seen the quarterfinal in the ESPN Classic of 1970, the English team in 1970 was even better. Anyway, the, 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 second, the, the, the second point I want to make is I completely uh, know what Tony is, is saying, Tony Alves, about the special relationship, but I remain like Julia, firmly the view there is something that characterises our relations with the US that is quite different, but I think my takeaway is we have to work a lot harder to that. And thirdly, and it's great, there's one politician here, the serious point that I want to make that links everything we said today is the problem we have because of the way that everything has collided over the last year or so, expenses, public, private life, that sort of thing, I'm just not sure that the kind of people going to public life are the kind of people who are actually going to make the real difference because a lot of people will look at public life as opposed to celebrity life and say, I don't want that because the risks of going to public life are so high if you get it wrong that a lot of rational people might say to themselves, why on earth would I do that? I'm just not sure that is very good for a healthy democracy, but that's a slightly pious point on which to end. Well, you've all said amazing things. Thank you very much. Uh, go forth and eat and talk. Thank you.